listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast, the official companion podcast to the book Scored to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the composers that do it. This is part two of an in-depth interview with composer Joseph LaDuca. In part one, we spoke at length about his musical background, process, and his work on Sam Raimi's Evil Dead trilogy. Before we get started, I'd like to give you a couple of notes. Later, during a discussion about jazz music, Joe mentions that Don Peake, the composer for the Wes Craven classic, The Hills Have Eyes, is in quote-unquote our group. This is in reference to a conversation that Joe and I had off mic. The group he is referring to is affectionately known as the Decomposers, and consists of Joseph LaDuca, Don Peake, Richard Band, Harry Manfredini, Joseph Bashara, and Christopher Young. They are a group of composers and friends that get together a few times a year for dinner. Throughout this and the last episode, you will occasionally hear these composers mentioned very casually and sometimes only by their first names. This is because they are mutual friends of both Joe's and mine. Joseph Bashara, Harry Manfredini, and Christopher Young are featured in the Score to Death book, and Richard Band is featured in the first two episodes of this podcast. During the show, I made an effort to refer to these composers by their full names. But if you hear Joe say the name Chris, for instance, he is referring to Christopher Young. Harry is Harry Manfredini, etc. Lastly, please excuse the less than ideal sound quality of this episode. Inconsistent sound is the unfortunate reality of doing this type of podcast. I, of course, will always strive to provide you with the best sounding show that I can, but due to the inconsistency of internet connections and recording methods, from episode to episode, the quality of the audio will at times be less than perfect. Okay, now that I'm through with the disclaimers, let's get started. Now, decades after Army of Darkness, you're asked to come back and score a TV show based on Evil Dead. What was it like coming back after so many years, working with this group of guys on Evil Dead again? Well, I think the biggest the biggest thing is, is having experience to work directly with Sam. Obviously, Sam's name is on a lot of the TV that I've done, but his involvement was nominal. Yeah. And so it was really working with Rob Tappert all those years. Really, that was, you know, he's, that's been the collaboration. You're talking about like Hercules and Xena and, and Mantis and all that stuff? All that stuff. And, and even Jack of All Trades that Bruce starred in, it was really, it was just another one of their productions. Yeah. Um, it's not that Bruce had, you know, Bruce and I didn't have communication on that. He was the star. And like any other star in any show i would have nothing to do with them you know so typically in television since you've worked so often in television you're not working with the individual directors because bruce directed some episodes of things like xena and josh becker directed a lot of stuff but you don't typically work with the directors you work with rob or the producers or the showrunner or whatever yeah i think it's mostly you're working mostly with the with the executive producer and the showrunner now sometimes those responsibilities get handed off 
and, and it depends on certain directors, you know, certain directors, because of their level of respect with the, with the showrunner, you know, might be around for a spotting session or might have something particular to say. But very often they're just, you know, I'm going to say this crudely and I don't mean it this way, but they're hired hands. Sure. They're in there for the week to do the gig and not mess up the flow of the production yeah. and make sure when they, everybody said, wasn't that fun or wasn't that great? Or I got to do this this time that I ordinarily don't get to do. And so it would happen, you know, where on Hercules and Xena, Eric Grunderman might have more of a role or, or, you know, TJ Scott was one of the more respected directors. Um, when I work on leverage and librarians, Jonathan Frakes, you know, often comes to a spotting session because we love him. And, uh, you know, Mark Roskin, who worked closely with Dean Devlin, if he's doing an episode, so he had more of that. Or if they're bringing in, if they're bringing in, you know, because if you're doing a series for a long time, especially on uh, leverage and librarians, if the, if the co-stars have a yen to direct, you know, they'll get their first or second shot at directing and so just to walk them through the entire process is a courtesy. They're part of the spotting session. But you're right. It's not the norm. And even so, by that time, purpose and the tone of the score is so well set. Sure. You're really going outside the box too much. You know, once you, once you define those set of parameters, our show is about this. So when we see this, we do this. You know, it, it, it becomes a pretty, pretty much a... a a Bible or a code for how you approach situations, dramatic situations. But when you get to work on Ash versus the Evil Dead, you get to work with Sam directly again, is what we were saying. Well, the pilot, he directed the pilot. And, yeah. and if you look at the pilot, the pilot doesn't look like any other of the episodes. Yeah. It's a bigger budget. <laughs> <laughs> actually, and actually, the music is probably different. I would say that the music is different on that episode than any of the other episodes before since well yeah i mean i remember watching it you know the first season when it aired and having the second episode come on you know a week after the first episode and it was weird because it's like as a fan and as a film student and as an editor and and everything it's like watching something and being like wow this is the first bit of at least the original evil dead you know with ash that was not directed by sam and although they kind of feel like they're going for that, it just doesn't feel exactly the same. <laughs> that second episode was a dog, um, um, as I recall from that year, but it got better. There were there were things that were better, and there were directors who were a lot to the party. Uh, subsequently, after however many episodes there have been now, 30-something. So, yeah, that, that one in particular. But I, I think it was the, <laughs> the shock of having spent all the money on the pilot. <laughs> You know, there's a combination of, you know, what I'll say for lack of a better term, like traditional horror film scoring, but there's also a lot of, of more contemporary sounds and rock kind of tones and stuff. What was the decision to kind of bring in those? Was it just budgetary or was there some kind of creative decision? No, no, no. I guess Ash is a is a child of the 70s. So, you know. The, the, the classic rock is his milieu is where the character lives and the idea which was established early on in the very first episode is is that you can have horrific situations you can score them with horror but if if you really want to get the humor out of most of them 
to put a rock score. Like there's one, there was one extremely violent scene in a diner. I think it was from season one. And literally, you know, every, every mutilation conceivable for, for sort of comedic horrific effect of the, the deadite goes through in the back of a diner through her face goes through a meat slicer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it's sort of, you know, that Rob's concerns that it was, I think we've really gone over the top with this. I'm, I'm really scared. Uh, Joe, can you help us out here? I had already tempted with some rock song. I can't remember what it was. And it was sort of like, I can't help you. The rock song, that's, the, that's your best bet. You know, just go completely the other direction. You know, nothing I can do can make this go away. <laughs> but the rock song at least gives you the context to not take it seriously. Yeah. And, and even bits of score I did, you know, for transitions and certain things and certain scenes for comedic effect, I would do out of a, a classic rock style with guitar. You know, there's a, I do a love scene a love scene, but I would do it for comedic effects. So I would, it would sound like Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, you know, it was, it was, you know, what, it, just whatever wacky thing comes to mind on the scoring end, there was a lot of, you know, really ugly string things. And when we go to the cabin, I get to go to the, the smaller ensemble again. The, there was an insane asylum episode in last season. I think it was two, yeah. Yeah, that you know. Once again, I went back to the small ensemble. I could, I could use that there. I think a lot of people don't realize that, in a lot of ways, horror and comedy are working with a lot of the same conventions. Kind of, there's uh, the suspense, uh, which is kind of maybe the joke. The punchline is like the like the sting or the big scare hit of horror. Comedy and horror are both relying heavily on timing and kind of suspense and payoff and stuff. And since you've worked on so many quote unquote horror comedies, but also straight horror movies and and television shows that maybe go further into the comedic aspect of things like Jack of all trades, for instance, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about the relationship between horror and comedy and how scoring both of them, the similarities and differences and also how it works. Cause sometimes your score, especially in the evil dead films, even though there's some goofy shit happening, it's like your score is kind of the straight man in those scenes. And had you played the music for a more comedic effect, it wouldn't have been as as funny. But it, but the fact that you play you're playing it seriously is what kind of punctuates the comedy. So I guess the question is just your thoughts on comedy and horror and working in both genres. Yeah, well, I think I think you've hit the similarity aspect on the head in that in that it's all about the timing. Uh, the 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 fact is that you know there's a setup and a payoff. So in that way, is it's it's technical. From a musical standpoint, I think the difference in comedy is that you have the aspect of of a musical reference. 
for example, even when you just when you use certain songs that everybody knows that they put in a movie when they put in Born to be Wild because someone's on a motorcycle or whatever. <laughs> you know, in other words, yeah. there's that layer of comedy, sure. you know, or there's the, the layer of comedy of doing, a, you know, an oompa polka over a fast tempo comedy scene or whatever it is. There's a layer of musical reference. So the jokes are as much referential as they are about timing and then setting up for the pie in the face. The aspect of, of the horror comedy, you can involve that. I mean, we did it in season two where, you know, the, the, the coroner is listening to a, a dark rap song, right? And the, the situation is, is that it's a setup for a horror thing. But the fact that it's a rap song and this coroner who obviously, you know, is listening to this quote unquote hardcore music, you know, is getting ready to get attacked. You've added to the humor by what's he listening to, you know. He thinks he's a badass, but he doesn't even know what's coming. So that's the difference. In horror, you're using the language of, generally using the language of horror, but you're absolutely right. Less so in Old Dead than, say, in a Chucky movie, where you got to play the straight man in the horror. You know, Chucky's this sarcastic, you know, humor guy with a lot of sarcastic humor who you in a way you kind of root for him and very 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 rarely would you would i ever play into the the humor of that sure you've got to choose your moments it's very very far in between you scored brotherhood of the wolf i was wondering how you came to that project um, was it simply because you had worked with uh, Christoph Gans in Necronomicon? Yeah, yeah. Christoph was a fan of Evil Dead, and and, and his producer, uh, Samuel Hadida, was responsible for, I think, getting Evil Dead distribution in Europe, particularly in France, uh, when it came out. So there was a relationship, and, and Christoph was originally a journalist, and I was a big fan of the movie. And uh, asked me to score his part in the wrap around story of Necronomicon. And um, again, it, it was kind of his first experience for him, as I recall. He did. He's he was great. He's a great director, you know. But it, he he tempted his story with Evil Dead, and I went in to see it, and I just said, "Please turn off the music. This has doesn't have any. You know, he was, I, I think he was doing it to be nice." Yeah. And it was like, I, I, that's not your story. You know, let me, let me listen. Let me, let me see what you have here. And um, it was really good. It was really good. And, and for Brotherhood to be his second movie, I mean, that was really amazing. I think the, the unfortunate story of that movie, which is a really, really fine movie, was it was to have premiered at the Toronto Film Fair Festival. Toronto Film Festival happens in early september right yeah 9 11 2001 and that was the story of what happened in that movie and uh yeah it was great it was great it was a great experience i mean it's a it's a it's a gorgeous score i mean it's a beautiful movie to look at and it's certainly unique i think especially for the time of the kind of the tone it was trying to hit and stuff and and watching it a couple of days ago because uh, I really hadn't seen that movie since the movie theater. But uh was also surprising like how little music is in it. 
but the music in it is absolutely gorgeous. Was it? Uh, I think there's an hour. There's at least an hour. And, but it's a but it's an almost three hour long movie. <laughs> is it three hours? Is it that it's long? like it's like it's at least two and a half. I, yeah, I don't remember. I just remember the music part. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like that experience. Clearly, the historical element was motivated kind of the sounds you decided to use and stuff, but do you have any recollections about that score specifically and, and maybe working with Christoph Gans about, you know, with the music and, and things like that? Yeah, no, I think, I think this was, you know, this was a period. I mean, if I were to interpret what I saw, it felt like something that was a Frenchman's interpretation of a larger budget American movie and kind of a Ridley Scott kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. So it, it was the, sort of a reimagination of what is, uh, you know, sort of the French version of Legend of Sleepy Hollow, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but again, very European in sensibility, you know, nudity, you know, uh, Monica Bellucci is a, is, a, is the whorehouse madam as a spy for the Pope. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. and so it was very clear that you could take an eclectic approach. So on one hand, you could go kind of epic John Barry. But on the other hand, you had, you know, the Tonto sidekick. So I bought some Native American flutes. played those and and then I could do some world music for the cowboy the French cowboy music it was like Morricone but with tabla and oud instead of any instruments he might have used you know So it was just a bunch of little liberties. And then uh, Samuel had me write a song for the end titles, which was very kind of world music, late 90s, early millennium style. If, it, if, it, if, if we could have gotten Sting, we could have got Sting. He, he could have sang that song. <laughs> yeah. Before we get to Chucky, I want to talk about working with Joe Dante on Burying the X. Joe was a sweetheart. It was great. It was, it was so easy. It was just so easy. I, there were three comments. The three comments I got from the score when I turned in the score was like, oh, yeah, can you make that sting louder? You know, and then the second comment, oh, yeah, that sting there. Can you make that sting louder? <laughs> so, you know what the third comment was. But, yeah, it was he was very happy with it. It was very easy. Um, I think we we got it. He got, you know, he got the idea off the bat. Uh, I got the idea off the bat of what we were looking at. It was very clear cut with that movie was supposed to sound like 
because it was it, it had comedic elements as well. Yeah, it's a fun film. I think I recall reading an interview where you said uh, something about you know going in, you had the right questions. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. And I was wondering what those questions were. I think that we had you know this sort of uh, you know L.A. twenty-something love story, doomed love story, if you will, and and it had to do with when we're in the mode when things are normal or appear to be normal, you know, how about I treat this like we're watching a, a CWYA kind of show. He goes, yeah, that's it. You know, okay, so we'll do that. We'll make it sound contemporary, but not too contemporary. We, if it had a little indie flavor. It added a little indie flavor, if you will. Uh, indie music, I mean. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's like this cursed genie kind of thing. You know, it's like, you know, how about a gypsy violin? It's like, perfect. Let's do the gypsy violin. Things like that. And you are at least for the last two films, the kind of the musical voice for Chucky. What was it like coming into a series so late? And in some ways, it's an interesting series because we think a lot of these horror series is just getting kind of worse as they go on. But in some ways, the Child's Play series kind of started really strong, then kind of dipped but then kind of came back really, <laughs> really strong again. I myself, which is not a film that you scored, but I, I love Seed of Chucky and I know nobody else feels that way. But when I watched Curse of Chucky, I was also pleasantly surprised that it was kind of going back more towards a horror aspect of it. And I, I particularly love the score for Curse of Chucky. So what was it like kind of entering that series? Was Did you feel an obligation to have similarities, you know, does that series have kind of a musical voice that you, that you felt like you needed to pay homage to, or did you just go in completely straight and, and open? I don't think that was a requisite. Uh, honestly, I'd never seen an entire Chucky movie. Of course, everybody knows who Chucky is. Yeah. Right. But I, I yeah, I, I had never seen a Chucky movie all the way through. I'd seen it between commercial breaks, flipping through channels. Um, sure. This is not to disparage, anything at all it's just not something i you know wasn't on my radar well that was the other thing i mean i totally you know i totally missed a lot of that because i mean i never saw an episode of seinfeld when it was on i was writing xena and hercules and cleopatra 220 20, 20 25 and jack of all so my dance card was filled you know when you get in when you go into the tunnels like that yeah the rest of the world goes away and so I was introduced to Don, and he knew my work. He's a great guy, and we hit it right off. It was very obvious from watching the movie what the score had to be. Like you said, it was a, it was a return to a classic haunted house movie. You know, it's that, you know, trapped in, a, trapped in a haunted house. And so I knew what that wheelhouse was supposed to sound like. Yeah. The other thing that was really great was we're sitting down talking about the movie and there's this whole idea of there's an elevator in the house because the main character is in a wheelchair. And 
and is a woman wheelchair. And so I just off the top of my head, I said, so Don, this reminds me of a movie from when I was a kid. It's like, it's, it's like Joan Crawford in a wheelchair and like James, a young James Caan with hair and, and a bare chest is tormenting her and he's in prison. She's in a wheelchair. He goes, that's exactly what I got this from. It's Burden the King. It's 1960 from, you know, and he's, it's like, I got it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm in. Why I remember that movie from Saturday morning television, it just shows you how much Saturday morning television I watched. So it, it, was, it was great because it was so there. You know, the way he shot it, what it's about, the convention of it. And then, then it was just about doing it. And the other thing was, is that, you know, I'm going, does Chucky have a theme? He doesn't have a theme. It's like, what? You, how many movies? Five, six movies? He doesn't have a theme. Okay. I said, can I write one? He says, absolutely. So I had a main title. You talk about montages. Yeah. A main title that I could do this theme on. So that was great. Yeah, I mean, I love the main title music. And then, you know, that kind of feel comes back later when uh, the sisters in the attic. Mm -hmm. stuff that's kind of launching into like the third act of the movie and uh, I love the blend of contemporary sounds yeah with the orchestra and stuff maybe you could talk about that marriage and how that decision came about um, you know, there's, there's just certain ways that, that that stuff lives very well together. Thank you, Hans Zimmer. You know, I mean, it, it, it's sort of, there's a, there's a way to do it, and there's a way to do it right, especially with horror with horror movies and any kind of movie. Really, if you merge the electronic sounds well with the orchestra, you're not really thinking of them as separate entities. Yeah, just like when you're engaged with a movie, you don't really hear the score. I don't. If I care about what's going on in the movie, I can, no matter how good the score is, I can usually turn it out because I'm interested in the, the totality of the experience. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. And, and um, especially because there are no acoustic, I mean, there's no live playing on either of the Chucky scores, except maybe if I'm playing a little guitar here and there. And I think it's electric when I do at all. That all the more reason to widen the palette because you know you there's a lot of sleight of hand that you have to go through to not focus on the fact that it's a freeze-dried orchestra yeah i mean that's kind of amazing because it does sound really great and organic i kind of never would have expected that you know none of it was actually done with an orchestra you know you gotta somehow find a way to infuse that performance with some kind of feeling it's so easy to tell when it's not that's the funny thing yeah i think if you if you if somehow you found a way to make music with these tools that can only express certain gestures um you know you've accomplished a lot because you know that, that that type of expression what's in the hands of a real musician is infinite here's the interesting thing when it comes to 
anything, but film music specifically. You know, there are just some things that remind at least me of other things. Uh, And sometimes it's not intentional and sometimes it is intentional. But to me, there's definitely a Herman vibe to the opening title sequence to Cult of Chucky. Yeah, no question, no question. It, it, it's 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 what Don wanted. He wanted something that was like that. You know, he wanted the North by Northwest energy. You know, he wanted that kind of thing, and it was sort of like, okay, we'll do that. It was very tied to that, and and very tied to his opening time. It was like, and see, now he's coming up the stairs, and and now oh, there's that splash of blood, and it was like. It's like, why didn't you let me write a piece of music first, you know, instead of, so I sort of got, sort of got boxed in by it, but you know, it turned out okay. Uh, you know, was, uh, you don't sound too thrilled with Cult of Chucky. Oh no, I'm completely cult. Oh no, no. Movie's great. You're talking about the, uh, you're talking about the, I'm just talking about the main titles. Yeah. 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 Well, the process, I, like I'm saying, the process would the ideal process is, is let me write a main title and then you cut to it. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know, in a world where he's got 28 days to shoot and they gave us less time and less money than the previous movie, you know, going to do. Sure. Is it fun to revisit what you started with Curse of Chucky? Is it fun to kind of revisit that language that you've kind of created and build upon it? Well, you know, when when he told me about the idea of the asylum and things like that, this was years because, you know, these things are years in the making. It's like, oh, I got this idea. Don, I got this idea. Five strings. And, you know, and of course, that went out the window real quick. <laughs> but what happened was is that you saw – you know, when you watch the movie, there's there's quite the contrast. There's the asylum and the coldness of the asylum. And then there are, you know, there's uh, Danny. So so that, you know, he's he's in the cabin with the with the with the animal heads, you know, in the wooden cabin. And, and then you have the uh, the other you have the villain of the the uh, psychiatrist. The head doctor that's in his study is warm, warm wooden study. So you have the contrast to those environments, and of course that sort of tundra. Uh, shining outside winter environment of Winnipeg in January. And it's sort of like, oh, okay. So what you're going to do is you're going to, you're really going to really interior decorate those environments. Yeah. And that becomes sort of the driving force for the movie. And then Don had some like 80s, some 80s music attempt in the some of the asylum parts. And it just wasn't it wasn't scary. You know, some of that stuff is just didn't trans. It didn't hold up well. Right. Yeah. 
And so then, then you're into the territory where you're being campy. And campy and Chucky, so far, I haven't been a fan of. Um, and as far as, you know, Chucky can be as campy as he wants, but I don't want the music necessarily to go there unless there's no other choice, unless you just got to run with it. So I, I used techniques that would have been referential to the 80s, but with more modern sounds, you know, because we were able to kind of mess up sound infinitely in infinite more ways now. Yeah. So that the electronic sounds are grungier. Even the acoustic sounds that I use were grungier. And so that was the approach to cult. And that was, to me, that was the discovery for me, is, is to be able to kind of still do what might be called narrative scoring, but to use a sound palette that at times was retro, but then at times was more, more cutting edge, I suppose, from a sonic perspective. It appears that scoring horror films gives you freedom in a lot of ways that other genres don't. Uh, I think Harry Manfredini said it's like you got everything in the in the cupboard to work with, plus this kitchen sink. You know, it's just the genre itself lends itself to experimentation and pushing things in a certain way. Do you enjoy scoring horror films? Yeah, well, the aspect of it that I enjoy is that, is the pure expressionism of it. You're not limited in the means to get there. As long as you're creating suspense and tension and dread and panic, as long as you're doing that, how you get there is nobody's business. <laughs> you know, you just just get there. You can just get there. You can't do that in a romantic comedy. Yeah. You know, so... So the idea that in some ways, yeah, in some ways your imagination is, is, is given a lot more license. That's the great part of it, I think. Did you, would you say that the music in horror films has a different relationship to the film than in other genres? I mean, more than the experimentation thing. Does it play a more active role? Yeah, it seems, it seems way more important. It seems way more important. And the opportunity for it to be a distinct character rather than, again, a, a musical accompaniment to dialogue, you know, that's the other aspect of it. There's more opportunity right from the get-go for it to, to play a character role. It doesn't, say, it doesn't mean that other types of films don't get to do that. Um, any film that Thomas Newman scores, he gets to do it. He knows how to do it anyway. But that's what I would say the difference is. Have you ever had a score rejected? Once. Once I did, but I think I, what I know happened there is that the, the post-production process was, was hurried. The director had been fired. The producer on the film was doing like five films at once. And there was one set of notes at some point. And it, it, was, it, just, it was just like one of these bad things. Post-production supervisor gave me the wrong schedule. So we were behind. Yeah. And it was it was one of those things where it, it, it's just one of those things that happened. I mean, I saw out of curiosity, I saw the finished score with, you know, and it was like not, in my opinion, really not good. And it seemed like the whole production was in trouble. Yeah. It, would, it, it never made it to the theater. So it was just, you know, things can happen. You know, you go into a situation with people that you don't know and. If you don't have a steward or a creative vision, 
um, or some sort of organized some sort of organization to the process with everybody on the same page. It's some things like that are going to happen. Does it suck <laughs> when that happens? Well, it all it, it always sucks because for a minute you think it's you, and then you realize it's not. In the book, Chris Young talks about it, and and Chris is a is a mutual friend. And so you know Chris, and Chris is very emotional. And the way he talks about it, it's like the world ended <laughs> when it happened to him. Well, you take you you would you would tend to take it personally because let's face it, those of us that do it has dedicated these crazy hours to our lives. We've given up a lot, and and, and the people around us have given up a lot to do this. And so that it not affects some measure of your self worth if. You know, the question is, is for how long, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, know you, you could feel bad for a day or two, but, uh, you know, yeah, any more is not a healthy, <laughs> it all depends. I mean, if you, you know, if you've labored over this and you've completed the score, I mean, look at these, look at these poor guys that have actually scored the entire movie and actually have gone through the process of recording it and producing it. And then having it thrown out because some marketing genius decided it should be something else, you know. Yeah. And let's face it, it's it's kind of goes with with a, a saying a producer told me a long time ago: if you're not being sued in Hollywood, you're a nobody. <laughs> you know? He's a producer, but you see what I'm saying? It's yeah. Like, well, if, if you're not worth going after, then you're not worth anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there a specific? film or specific recording session you you look back on finally as one of your favorites it doesn't necessarily have to be that you you love the score so much although i'd be i'd be fascinated to hear if there's a if there's a particular score that you're proud of but is there a film or, uh, or an experience that you look back on very fondly as maybe one of your favorites no i i would i would just say there you know there are just certain moments of that, that occur uh in the process of music making that are are unique they don't even necessarily have to be recording sessions but i could point to a number of experiences that i've had that for some reason come to mind you know i was working on a movie with angelo badalamenti and, and scoring in london and you know the music that he writes and i was conducting for him and orchestrating and doing synth stuff and all this project and you know, he writes music that you know, the, the, his colleague, the great jazz drummer, Grady Tate, said about him once, he says, Angelo writes at two different tempos, slow and reverse. <laughs> and so we're playing one of these really slow pieces. I think it's like under two beats a minute, yeah. you know. It's as slow as your arms can move. And I mean, do you mind mentioning which what project it was? It was a, it was a, it was a movie called The Edge of Love. It was Kevin Knightley, Kevin Murphy, Matthew Riss, and Santa Miller. It was about Dylan Thomas, or relationship Dylan Thomas. And I'm conducting one of these slow pieces. And there's this woman on the string bass. And she's playing like double, triple whole notes on this slow piece. And yet what I'm hearing come out of her by holding just this note is an entire song. 
And what a miracle to, to experience something that simple. There's an experience of on another movie that I did a score for called Patagonia. It's kind of this movie that half takes place in Wales and half takes place in Patagonia because the Welsh emigrated to Patagonia with the promise of a, a better life. That's, that's not really what the movie's about, but that's, how, that's the relationship. There's a unique relationship between Wales and Patagonia, which nobody really knows about. And so recording songs, we recorded, uh, wrote some songs, recorded songs, and recorded a Welsh hymn and went to Wales, this little recording studio on the edge of northern Wales with chickens running around in the backyard. This lady wearing a Sgt. Pepper coat. And, and I'm playing 12-string guitar, playing a Welsh hymn sung with uh, the, the famous operatic baritone, Bryn Turfel, his name, Bryn Turfel. Bryn has like the voice of God. And so we're facing each other. We're like about three feet away from each other. He's facing me and singing this hymn. And my guitar is just vibrating. It's just going crazy because his voice is so amazing. And, you know, that's that's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. There's experience that I had just last year where I did this sitcom. It's on Netflix called Disjointed. Uh-huh. The showrunner is this, uh, this real music lover and fantastic lyricist, and we wrote some songs together. But for the bumpers, he wanted me to do all manner of sort of jazz and rock bumpers for the sitcom but live so i have some friends we got a band together of a-list jazzers uh in la and recorded at ocean way which is the old brown sinatra studio and there's pictures of all the red pack outside and we just we hit it You know, and, and play for, with, with these bumpers and, and stuff like and, and things like that. So, you know, without having not played jazz in a long time and, and not, you know, being within that community, just to have the opportunity to kind of do that and, and hang with the cats and, and, and do a session like that was quite unique uh, in my experience because jazz is not something that ever falls much into our wheelhouse. I think, isn't Chris, Chris was a jazz drummer, wasn't he? Yeah. Chris was a jazz drum. Chris Young was a jazz drummer. And I think Harry Manfredini was a jazz saxophone player. Yeah. I, yeah. He plays, he plays sax. So we, you know, it's within our, you guys should, you guys should start a jazz band. Well, we talk, you know, we certainly talk about those experiences. Uh, oh, wait, did you mention, did you also mention in our group, uh, Don Peak. Oh, okay. It's part of the group. So Don was, you know, a member of uh, the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. He's been with the Wrecking Crew, you know, and so he's part of the group too. So, you know, we have that in our background, but it isn't anything that necessarily hardly ever, ever, ever get called upon to do. So it's, it's fun to get a chance to do that. If you had to speculate, do you think that experience, I mean, obviously all of your experiences play a part. But you think so many of you guys do have a jazz background. Um, I mean, is there a chance and could you speculate as to like what influence the jazz has on your on, you know, your horror movie score specifically, since so many of you guys that are known for horror? I mean, I would say you less so are known, I think, for horror 
than some of the other guys. But, uh, you know, does jazz play a part, even if it's not uh, identifiable as jazz? I, I don't know about horror per se, but I think the idea of those of us that have a jazz background, what we can, the discipline that we can bring to the party, okay, is that there are two things. First of all, is the object of improvisation in the moment. So I think that's important because your reaction, emotional reaction to what you're seeing has to be spontaneous. And so having that in your background and then, you know, having the added uh, sweetener, if you will, so that you're open to all the intervallic possibilities and whatever else, you know, harmonic possibilities that might pop into your head, that those things are under your fingertips, even if you're not using your fingertips, but your imagination, you can hear them. So I think that that's that's a skill set that lends itself to being a film composer, period. The fact that you've done dabbling in jazz, perhaps, you know, can you can you can turn on the darker side that much more easily or quickly. And I the, the second aspect of that is that as an improviser, you are obliged to tell stories spontaneously. If you've ever been drawn to a jazz musician's performance, it's because they're telling you a story. And if you're not, it's just noise. (laughs) You know, and and that that could be you and it could be them. You know, I I mean, I had that experience as a young person going to hear Ornette Coleman. This is the first kind of wave of avant-garde. And it was very obvious that this guy from Texas was telling me a story. And so the aspect that we're, we're storytellers, I mean, that's, that's what we really are. You know, if it's a, if it's a scary, tell me a scary story or tell me a pretty story or tell me a fantastic story that takes place in the future. It it is that. So I would say that those, the background in that music gives you a leg up as a film score. It doesn't mean that all jazz musicians can can be film composers. That's not true. Because yeah. if, if, if you don't have the gene to storytell with what you're looking at, then that, ain't, that isn't going to happen. You know, a lot of jazz musicians that I've worked with do have that gene, and a lot don't. Not every film composer, obviously, or every film composer that does horror has a background in jazz. Uh, is there anything about your process that you think might be specific or unique to you that I might not know to ask about? Yeah, I don't know. You know, the thing is, is that, you know, I, I was, I've been an outlier, you know, however it happened, it happened. You know, I figured out how to do it. I didn't go to school for it. Um, I applied to USC after I think the second movie I scored and whoever was running the program at the time said something like, you're already doing what less than 10% of any student that walks through the door <laughs> dreams to do. So it was sort of, okay. And, but you see, you know, that was the crossover generation. That was the beginning of the electronic revolution, at least in music. Sure. And, and, and break up the studio system. The, the apprenticeship thing kind of went out the window and that's you know, that's how you get a Danny Elfman. That's how you get a Mark Isham. That's how you get a me. And so, you know, I, I just, I wouldn't know. Someone would have to tell me. <laughs> I 
having the experience of, of you know, of living part time in L.A. now and, you know, having more access to a community of people who do what I do, I don't think I missed anything, meaning that I might not do everything the way everybody else does, but it, it doesn't seem unique enough, better enough where I need to switch or that I've got that. Or, or, or I've got that aspect covered. I just do it a little differently. Sure. It's it's kind of like, you know, if you've got anything on the ball, um, you know, I've had to work in New Zealand with musicians. I've had to work in Detroit with musicians. I've worked in London. I've worked in all parts of the world with musicians. And the thing is, is there are all kinds of talented people in music and in really any other of the arts, any place you go to. A lot of great people. Difference is, is if I want a certain thing to accomplish with musicians and i would say the same thing about composers if i try to do that in detroit i can go maybe one maybe two deep okay and then it starts to get iffy if i go to los angeles i go five six seven eight deep you know if i go to new zealand it's one and a half deep if you know and, and so on and so on right yeah well the aspect of this is gee what made motown so great oh these guys were doing it seven days a week that's what they did they were they were fine fine talented musicians to begin with but they're doing it every day and so there's something to be said for that you know it was sort of i was was watching a seinfeld thing with comedians and cars and coffee and he was referring to if you saw a comedian and he was up there for an hour and he was just killing it right and the admiration that comes from his peers is do you realize how far he had to crawl on his belly to get there yeah yeah so uh you know it's about the it's about the experience it really is is there any other knowledge you could impart to someone who might be interested in pursuing film scoring especially now it's changed so much since you started so maybe your advice in the eighties would be much different than it is now, but is, is there something you could tell someone aspiring to score films that might be able to help them? Something you've learned? Well, it it seems, you know, the landscape has changed. So I think what may, yeah, find a Sam Raimi, you know, the, I I think the idea is, is that you got to say yes, whether or not you're completely confident when you say yes, you know, just fake it till you make it. I think the, the aspect is the opportunity, whether it be writing for music libraries, writing for student films, putting yourself in a community with people who are making music. And, and uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be film music. There's a young man who used to uh, work for Chris. I mean, he wrote a book, you know, uh, do you want to be a film scorer, be an assistant to a composer, be a tech person. You know, you're, you're a millennial skill set that is far above the technical computer aspect of anybody you might be working for that's a generation older so market that yeah put yourself put yourself in the inner circle so you either do it from the outside by finding people to collaborate who are on their way up a community of people whether that be in the school you attend whether it be that or whether you're going to just make the big leap and first of all you got to acquire the skill set then, and then you have to find out where, where you can put that. If it's working for 
a manufacturer, a software manufacturer, uh, whether it's going to be working for Roland Corporation, but you're going to meet all the artists, you know, whether it's getting involved with a music editor, whether it's involved in being an assistant editor, if you have enough knowledge to be able to do that, if you if you've acquired that sort of skill, do the adjunct thing. I mean, I know songwriters, there are assistant sound editors and they're trying to make it as 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 songwriters. But they're in the they're somewhere in the industry. They're working somewhere. Any kind of any kind of position that's going to put you one step closer to, to what your goal is. Yeah. You're going to have just a lot of frogs unless you get extremely lucky. And that doesn't happen very often. I think that's fantastic advice. And I think that like the proof is kind of in the pudding with that. And and I can say from interviewing you guys that uh, if somebody's listening, because I think especially when you're young, you know, you kind of feel like you have everything planned out. You don't realize until you're, you know, in your 30s or 40s that you really didn't know anything at that time. <laughs> uh, but uh, for instance, in my book, Nathan Barr yeah. uh, worked as an assistant for Hans Zimmer. Jeff Grace worked for an, as an assistant to uh, Howard Shore. Mm-hmm. And and even, even Joseph Bashar worked on John Carpenter movies, uh, you know, because John didn't know how to use the computers. So, <laughs> and Joseph did. So right. uh, I think mm-hmm. that is invaluable advice. Yeah, I... Uh... It, it, it really, truly is. You know, I had an opportunity falling to my lap, and things fell in that, and I saw the, I saw a better path open up as a result. Well, Joe, I have to thank you for taking the time for this. This was uh, fantastic, fascinating, and I, I just need to thank you because this is, it continues to be proven that. Uh, Film composers are a gentleman's club and very and very generous guys. Uh, that all of you, I've had nothing but fantastic experiences talking to all you guys. That's really nice to hear. And, and um, honestly, like I said, uh, having the experience to uh, get to know some of my colleagues better, I've had the same experience. So yeah, it's a gentleman's club that really needs to stick together. So I, I'm I'm glad I'm glad to participate. Okay, I think that's going to do it. I, of course, need to thank Joseph LaDuca for giving so much of his time and knowledge to the show. Speaking with him has been an absolute pleasure. If you're a fan of Joe's, you know we've only scratched the surface. Hopefully, he will come back on the show in the future for a part three. I also want to thank Joseph Bishara for introducing me to Joe LaDuca and helping to make this interview possible. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the book Scored to Death Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers is available on Amazon. Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you can order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at scoredtodeath. Scored to Death, the podcast, is available on most podcast apps and distribution sites, as well as on SoundCloud and YouTube. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most places you find podcasts, and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sat Sleepovers. You can find Joseph LaDuca at LaDucaMusic.com, and on Twitter at JLaDucaMusic. And I should note that the short clips of music used in this podcast were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context. 
to audibly illustrate specific things discussed and for educational purposes. Much of Joseph LaDuca's music is available on Spotify and iTunes. The soundtracks discussed in this episode were Ash vs. Evil Dead. Some of the music from this series can be found on CD from Verez Saraband and also on iTunes and Spotify. Music from Brotherhood of the Wolf can be found on CD from Virgin. The score for Burying the Axe can be found on CD from Lakeshore Records, as well as on iTunes and Spotify. The music from both Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky is available on iTunes, Spotify, and other digital downloads from Backlot Music. And this episode also featured the track Freakin' Out by the band Death, off their album For the Whole World to See, which is available on vinyl LP, CD, and cassette from Drag City. You can also find it on iTunes and Spotify. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death, the podcast. Please come back in two weeks for another interview with one of horror's greatest composers. Music